Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. These last few weeks, this feed was dedicated to Unfair, our narrative podcast about the skin lightening industry. Our last episode in that series aired last week. And on that day, we held a live listening party along with a Q&A, all virtual, of course. Me, our producer Pierre, and one of our sources from the first episode of Unfair, Nina Davalori, all met with some of our listeners over Zoom. We listened together to our fourth and final episode and then took some audience questions. So as a bonus episode, we thought we'd share that conversation with you. It's about the skin lightening industry, of course, and it's also about the podcast that we made about it. If you haven't heard Unfair yet, you'll find it in the same podcast feed you're listening to now. Next week, we'll get back to our regular weekly programming where I interview executives in the beauty space. But until then, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hey, everyone. I do believe that we're live now. So hi, I'm Pierre. I'm the producer on uh, on Glossy Presents Unfair, also known as Unfair. <laughs> hi, everyone. I'm Priya Rao. I am the host of Unfair. And Pierre and I have such an amazing summer, um, kind of an unexpected summer, reporting this and creating this. Um, so we're just going to let a few minutes, we're just going to give people a few minutes to trickle in. Um, we're really excited about what we've been um, building this summer. You know, I think when we had the idea for this podcast and Pierre and I can talk a little bit about this more after you guys listen to the final episode, but, um, you know, we just really were surprised about, um, this industry and something that we were really interested in delving more deeply into is just like the cultural, um, side of this business and how big uh, beauty reflects um, what's going on in our culture. So it was a different project, but um, Pierre had the great idea. I wrote a story about this in May, shortly after uh, the death of George Floyd um, with my colleague, Liz Flora. And um, we kind of wrote about like kind of the, the chasm that existed between these products and these companies that were saying one thing and um, doing another. And then Pierre said, let's, Let's try something new. Pierre, you want to talk a little bit about what that was like? Yes, we, we, this is our first, our very first narrative scripted podcast. So if you've heard the podcast before, obviously Priya has these one-on-one conversations with people in the industry, but this is, uh, is kind of a much more like worked kind of thing. We had Priya do a lot of recording uh, in her professional studio, uh, also known as a closet. And uh, it worked out pretty well. So we're, we're really excited with the results. Yeah, I think just one thing, you know, we just kind of tried to do was like, obviously, the first episode was setting this issue up and the chasm that existed between, you know, companies talking about beauty companies specifically, talking about racial injustice, ca- talking about inclusivity, and then um, selling these products around the world. And then we kind of went into the harm that these products pose both from a psychological and from a health perspective in episode two, and then the history, which is very complicated. You know, you want to point um, to one bad apple, I guess you would say, but it's really about, it's a much more multifaceted issue. One that led us to apartheid and the antebellum era and, you know, black companies and African-American led companies who um, also sold these products. Priya, I don't know. We've got a list of questions here um, kind of, that we've got in advance. I'm not sure if there are any that, uh, that caught your eye, especially. Um, well, I think um, one thing was people asked about the research kind of that went into this. And I think what was surprising was that we weren't sure how this was going to go end up. You know, I think when we first started this, it was a little bit of a, a breadcrumb, a little bit of a breadcrumb each week. And, you know, from our first episode, you know, we talked to Nina, who is who you'll hear from in a little bit. 
and we talked to people who had used skin lighteners. And then it was just kind of like more and more people, once they heard the first episode, wanted to talk to the second episode. I think the regulation episode is a great example of like basically talking to everyone in Minnesota <laughs> who deals with this from Ilhan Omar, from people at the California Department of Health. You know, it was just kind of like very connected. Pierre, you want to add on that? Yeah. So, I mean, like Priya said, it is true. I mean, so the question, just, just to kind of repeat that, where it was, I think, where do you draw most of your research from? Uh, definitely it's from having spoken with with, with dozens of people um, and all kinds of people. We all wanted to hit a few bases. We wanted to talk to to some activists, but also some academics, some historians, sociologists, uh, market analysts, um, people who have used the product uh, and, and things like that. And of course, someone who used to, or who still does rather, moderate a really big internet forum. Um, finally, my, my Reddit messaging uh, paid off because someone replied. But, and, and so like Priya was saying though, it's true that, you know, some of the people, uh, once the podcast actually went live, some of the early episodes helped us uh, get guests for, for future ones, including uh, Kanita Chinoli, who was the last person that you hear from uh, in, in this episode. Um, but yeah, you know, we, 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 we read books and talked to a bunch of people, uh, articles. Uh, there's so many different ways to uh, learn about this. Um, you know, it's very different learning about how much uh, money Unilever brings in from Fair and Lovely and then learning also about uh, tyrosinase, which is the enzyme that blocks the uh, generation of melanin in the skin. So, you know, it's like all these little things and, and we kind of hopefully uh, spread that out across our, our four episodes as far as the research goes. And I think another question, um, you know, someone asked was that why is the industry taken so long to recognize this issue? And I think that's a great question because that's kind of the timeliness of this podcast. I think, you know, you know, for myself, at least I can say, and Pierre obviously can jump in at this point. I mean, I know Nina probably has some thoughts when she joins us in a few minutes, but, you know, I'm very, I've been very aware of skin lighteners as, you know, being Indian American. My parents grew up in India, you know, South Asian. I think it's a very common beauty product. So I was aware of the market, but I also was not aware of the scope. I, I was surprised to know that this was a global issue in every country and every community um, wealthy or, you know, impoverished, you know, India, Africa, the U.S. And um, I think the reason why it's been so shocking and we're, we're at the precipice of this reckoning or in the midst of it is because of what happened with Black Lives Matter this summer. And it's because of, you know, the, what we saw with George Floyd and the murder of George Floyd, what happened there was so horrible and companies were finally willing to kind of step out with their next on the line to say like this, we can't talk about this. We have to stand for something with racial injustice. And that is a very, very different thing from some of the products that they're selling. So I think we're in the midst of this. Um, and that's why it's taken so long to recognize whether that kind of takes is we're still, we're still waiting. Pierre. Yeah, that's definitely it. You know, the reason where you're talking about this now is because of, uh, because of George Will's George was death for sure. And, you know, what some journalists have described as a global racial reckoning, which, you know, has reached so far across so many, so many things. Uh, that's something that we kind of laid out in the very first episode. So, you know, definitely it, it's been an, an incredible, an incredible domino effect, really, um, where it stops and how big of a domino it knocks down. If we're talking about dominoes that get progressively bigger, because dominoes do work that way. It's kind of weird. Um, if, if, if you want them to, but, um, that's, that remains to be seen. That's what this last episode is about. So I would love to bring Nina over um, onto the screen if she will join us. Um, I think she has a lot of thoughts probably about this too, because Nina, obviously you've been talking about this probably since you won Miss America, right? In 2014. Will you share with us a little bit about that? 
Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, there's, there's so many thoughts racing through my head and, and all the things that you guys touched on and covered just within the podcast. Um, and just for a little bit of quick background, um, for those of you who don't know, um, I, I started this work and again, grew up in a South Asian family. You know, this was just something that was normal, considered normal, the lighter skin you are, the more beautiful, you know, or successful, et cetera. Um, and the morning after I won Miss America, I remember waking up to an Indian headline in an Indian newspaper that said, is Miss America too dark to be Miss India? And it was kind of that tipping point of there had been so many instances and experiences along the way where I just, it was that moment of enough is enough. Why does this conversation happen? Why does it exist? Why is that the first thing that people, um, I suppose, consider in terms of beauty standards, not only within India, but again, around the world. And um, so that was kind of what led me to start the work and research um, over the past six years, just having conversations with so many South Asians across the country growing up, you know, here in India, like growing up Indian American, going back to India, trying to find this idea of what beauty is in in both in two different worlds uh, was really interesting to me. And, um, you know, and that's what led to complexion was recognizing that, again, this isn't just one cultural issue. It's actually a global issue. Skin color affects everyone. It's the first thing, you know, we notice about people and it's, it's so integral to our identity. Um, and so asking the question, why do we feel the need that, why is it, why does this idea of colorism exist that only white skin is considered elite or better than or more successful? Yeah, I think that that's like a very interesting point, and you know, because so much of these conversations that we've been having, at least at the beginning, people were with companies, with brands, with influencers. It was like, oh, you know, we're not racist. We're not, you know, you know, we support Black Lives Matter. We're posting a BLM square, which we talk about in this last episode. But like, that doesn't really solve for colorism, colonialism, casteism, classism, which is a very difficult thing to unpack. What would you say about that? It's true. There's just so many, there's so many layers to this. And I think, you know, one of the things that I recognized was that I thought there were like three significant moving pieces to this of how do we actually change this in different industries. First, of course, is starting the conversation, recognizing um, that this is an issue, that colorism is a problem. And that happened, um, like you both had mentioned, because of the death of George Floyd and because of the Black Lives Matter movement. And when we're having these conversations in our home about racial injustice and equality and what that really means, and if we're not addressing what this looks like in our own culture, that's a problem. And I think that conversation has started finally. Um, I think the second piece of it was that when we did see companies, not only companies, but also um, you in terms of Bollywood celebrities who were posting about Black Lives Matter and, you know, yet again, promoting Fair and Lovely or Now Glow and Lovely or whatever skin whitening product, you know, that's, you know, how, like, how can you say one thing and then be promoting something else that perpetuates this stereotype and ideology that is racist? Um, And I think finally people are kind of, are recognizing that and noticing that. And I think also the third piece of it was that media has a huge part in this as well. So kind of working, collect all of these moving pieces, not only the skin whitening industry, media conglomerates, as well as Bollywood celebrities, people are seeing. Um, And I think the last um, person you spoke with said something probably the most insightful that I absolutely agree with is that unfortunately, the people who really need to hear this conversation 
don't have access to it. You know, this is still happening within a certain class of society. And socioeconomic status is certainly very much related to also this ideology and this hierarchy of colorism. And so unfortunately, there's a huge population that still isn't recognizing this. And how do we reach them is the next question. Right. You know, one thing I, we talked a lot about Pierre and I, and we wanted to have an answer. I think at the end of this, we wanted to be like, this is what's going to happen. People are going to pull out. People are going to, Amazon's going to take all the stuff with Mercury off the shelf. You know, we wanted there to be a finale. And I think that was so hard to do because, and Pierre said, Pierre wrote a great line in our script, which was like the activists we spoke to, the corporations themselves, the government regulators, like no one really knows what's next. And I mean, I think Pierre, you could probably elaborate a little bit more on that, but, you know, just this idea that even though like we're in this age of like, you know, wanting to hear the customer, wanting to have conversations on social media, like Nabella said, you know, you want to, you want to be more connected than ever. These people don't have the power to say, no, we're not, or it's not enough power to, Mm -hmm. to totally stop it. What do you think, Pierre? Nina, I want to get your thoughts on this also, of course. Um, Certainly something that was saying earlier was that uh, the people who who need to hear this conversation aren't really being able to tap into it. One of the things that this book gets into at the very end is that at this point, not to talk about the future, but to talk about the present of the industry, it is, it it is much more of of a class divide than a geographical one. You know, it's, it's, um, it's poorer people across the world that are being targeted uh, by uh, all kinds of different le- levels of these products, whether it's, you know, ones you could find in a uh, well-lit drugstore or uh, a more casual kind of uh, commercial outlet, or also, you know, down to the bootleg stuff that can be very harmful. So um, that's kind of the division that's existing now. Um, as for the future, though, you know, what we wanted to do in this episode is is uh, is lay out kind of uh, some optimism and some of the pessimism that we that we heard. Uh, we didn't go looking for it. It's just kind of what uh, it's what we kind of heard from from different people. You know, we had Alex Malouf, who used to work at P&G, who, um, who has that more optimistic view. And, you know, and then we spoke to some others and, and we kind of asked them about that. We we're like, hey, we just spoke with this person. They said this. Like, what do you think? And, um, you know, often often the answer was a bit more pessimistic because we are, after all, dealing with uh, with money, uh, with, with billions of dollars that are at stake. And the fact that, you know, to some degree, people can kind of slow corporations can slowly make some certain shifts. But um, if if the outrage lets up, which, you know possibly it does, um, then, then the, the change might stop at that point. You know, what do you think about that? Because, you know, I think, you know, the only people who really pulled out of this game this summer was J and J. And when we got back to them, it, when they got back to us, rather, it was that it was less than 1% of their global sales. So mm-hmm. it wasn't making money anyway. Fine. So when it does make money, um, and, you know, branding and, and tweaks are so obviously the same. What do you think is what's next? Well, I think, first of all, when I saw the the new Glow and Lovely campaign, which you guys touched on, I was, uh, I wasn't surprised. I was, I was so hopeful um, that, you know, some changes would happen. Um, I'm not surprised because it is their, I think it's their main hero product in many countries globally. So I understand that there is this, that corporations need to make money. But I almost want to ask the question, if you make those small tweaks, if you make branding, think about the population that you're leaving behind. Think about the, you know, 
it, it just doesn't, for me, it's difficult to wrap my head around why to only market one standard of beauty when there are so many different people that they could cater to that feel seen or feel represented or feel valued. And why aren't they tapping into those core values as a corporation when they put out these statements of, you know, who they are and what they believe in and all globally connected and diversity. Everyone's using these buzzwords, but how are they actually implementing them is very different. Um, so, you know, to see Unilever come out with Glow and Lovely and in that campaign was, of course, um, incredibly frustrating. But I think a lot of people um, have not stopped this conversation. I certainly have not. Um, from my end, I've also seen, you know, I think the, the bigger piece of this is that um, it's groups of conversations, groups of people doing this. It's not just one person. And I think ultimately when I like speak with other people who have asked, what can I do? How do I get involved? Share your story. Share your story, sign a petition, get involved with something that you're connected with, um, you know, whether it's this podcast or anything that you see that inspires you. Um, there is so much more strength in numbers than you can possibly think, and that's how movement's happening. And we've already seen that happen, but it does have to continue. It's not, you know, a, an overnight process by any means. Um, I'm hopeful to see the other corporations, um, you know, L'Oreal as well as um, Procter & Gamble, um, to see what, what their moves are. I feel like also are huge players in this, in this piece. Um, and they have not yet rolled anything out. Um, so I think there are internal conversations happening. Um, and I'm curious to see how that, that will continue. Um, because I think if one, if one corporation does it right and starts doing it well, and they absolutely have the opportunity to, and of course, all the resources <laughs> to be able to do that, I think that will also create that domino effect that we're talking about. That's such a good point that you bring up. It's actually one of the, like the things Nabella said in our, in our last episode, Nabella Noor, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, her own experiences being Bangladeshi American, you know, going to the fount counter and feeling like she was getting powder put on her face. That was like shades and shades lighter than her. And, you know, I asked her, I was like, she as well, we didn't get this in the episode, but I asked her, do you think they'll die best? And she said, oh, you know, I don't know. I don't really think so. But at the same time, I was like, you know, is there a standard that these companies could follow? Like, you know, nobody wants to be the first to say they're pulling out. And she said, she reminded me about Fenty Beauty. And, you know, three years ago, nobody was making foundation, all-inclusive foundations for 40 shades or and now 50 shades. And now basically the Fenty standard has become every beauty brand standard. If a brand comes out with less than that, um, it looks, you know, obtuse. So, I mean, there is opportunity for change in this industry and there is opportunity culturally, but it's like, you need one big gun to, to, like you said, take the stand, do it right. And, and say, we're doing this. You also, if I could jump in, I mean, you also have to wonder and to speculate a bit, you have to wonder about maybe the competitive advantage in doing that, you know? So Johnson and Johnson, they divested, they, they, they cut, they dropped their one product or two products, two fairness products that they had. Um, so, I mean, in a way, you could imagine that they maybe they would have like celebrated that and pointed out that they're doing this and that this ought to be done. Sure, it'd be easier for them to do it. It's not as painful because it was representing, you know, like we said, less than one percent of their global sales. That might not be the case for for PNG and Unilever, but um, yeah, why why wouldn't they do that? You know, you see, um, this is the this is the situation in which we we wish we could have spoken with someone uh, at some of these companies, but um, but you know, they didn't they didn't want to. Um, you know, you do have some of these commercials, like in, in general, like you're taking pot shots at other at other companies. That happens. Tide 
cleans better than the leading other brand. Uh, Tide is owned by PG. Obviously, it's going to be a, a CPG company there. So, um, yeah, maybe there's some kind of, I don't want to say a truce for this specifically, but maybe there's a truce overall. They don't kind of like, you know, they like, they want to grow the whole pie as opposed to kind of uh, fight each other. Uh, I don't know, but you'd think that maybe they could kind of tout their, uh, their move a bit more as something that, that is socially, uh, that is socially conscious. Yeah. We actually have an audience question from Liz, Liz Flora. Um, so she was talking about what happened to the cosmopolitan editor, Kanita Shinoi in Sri Lanka, which is a crazy, crazy story. One that we all just found about, found out about, um, in 2020, even though it happened in 2018. And she's asking, does this type of thing happen frequently or may, are large conglomerates working to control the cultural narrative to maintain demand for these products? Great question, Liz. I think we all probably have thoughts. You know, I think the most obvious thing is that, like, in some ways, they're perpetuating this this ideology, right? Like, it's not just the products, it's the marketing themselves. It's the women in those commercials. It's the women and men in those advertisements. I know in um, our first episode, Madeline Flores talks about, you know, she's Filipino-American and, you know, everybody on Filipino TV is white or is like some blend of Filipino and white. Nobody look had brown skin and Kanita talks about that in Sri Lanka. So I'm not totally sure if, you know, companies are putting pressure on publishers themselves, but I imagine, especially in the Bollywood industry, it's all very integral, you know, with media affects entertainment that affects beauty, that affects film and vice versa. I mean, Pierre and Nina, do you have thoughts? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is I actually spoke with, um, a friend and actress who um, who's Indian American grew up here um, and actually decided to move to Mumbai um, and pursue hosting and acting and, you know, pursue that industry. Um, and she actually, I remember she told me the story about how she, I guess her agent had sent her an ad, like a, like an audition, sorry, <laughs> her, an audition for a fair and lovely commercial. And she just kept saying, no, like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, be a face of this product. I just don't believe in it. And she like really stood her ground. She said she continued to get phone calls from her agent, the photographers who were involved in the campaign, um, other like stylists that were like, why wouldn't you take this? It's really great money. This is like your intro in, like this is your foot in the door. Like this is a huge commercial. And she just kept saying no. And she said, I, I felt like I got blacklisted because people were like, oh, she's difficult to work with. You don't want to work with her um, because she had said no to such a huge campaign and large amount of money. And I think you're right. All of it is very connected, especially within an industry like that. Um, so it makes it that much harder because I, I think the other piece of it too is I'm curious, and this is not necessarily my world in some ways it is, but also like when we talk about influencers and the products that they're promoting, obviously they're paid similarly by any advertise, like any media company would be paid, you know, they're also advertising for products and, um, you know, like, do they, do they believe in it or is it just also, you know, it's a paycheck for them too. So there's all these factors to consider, um, in terms of what we're actually consuming, um, media wise. Pierre, you have any thoughts? I mean, hmm, specifically <laughs> to that question, uh, I, I you know, Definitely can't come come down and say like absolutely that that is, that is happening. Um, but you know, obviously the uh, that is a trope that journalistic journalists will look for is is the dynamic between a big powerful company who perhaps is pressing their advantage against uh, someone who they think could uh, could could let them have their way. You know, in terms of creating certain media. In this case, um, 
I don't know. It's a vast question. And certainly, you know, media is, is, is not separate from the rest of society and, and reflecting it, it is, it is very much, you know, a part of it. So, um, that's all very important when you're talking about, uh, news media or, or certainly Bollywood. Uh, one thing we didn't, yeah, to get into the episode is that, um, the men's market is actually something that, that is likely, uh, growing and being targeted next. And, you know, you watch the, the, the Bollywood stars uh, on that front, or I think maybe also cricket players, I believe. And, uh, the commercials are like, you know, it's the same message, but the vibe is totally different. It's like rock guitars instead of, fluttering harps um it's it's kind of interesting to see how like incredible dichotomous it is and one last thing i would say too is that the reason the reason that in our script the reason that we said in the outro that companies are responsible for expanding this geographically as, as opposed to just you know answering a market they're also growing it is because of of, of some of the stuff that can told us which is that in some regions of sri lanka this um this practice actually wasn't really all that much around and and these people are being told uh, sorry, these people, consumers, I should say, are being given this message perhaps for the first time, uh, you know, given these colors ideas perhaps for the first time. We thought that was really interesting too. Yeah, yeah. What well, We have one last question. I think we have time for one more from Harim Khan. And um, let me read it out loud so everybody hears it. I think what what is crucial about incorporating into any discussion on colorism is its systematic nature. This cannot be located solely to media representations, corporate branding and advertising and changing mindsets. You mentioned the cast, cast in passing, but can you please elaborate on the relationship between cast and colorism? How exactly do you connect colorism to, to systemic oppression inherent in casteism, capitalism, and white supremacy? Big question. Um, but, you know, I think we go into this in a little bit into episode two, and I would love, you know, obviously um, Nina and Pierre to talk about this as well. But, you know, one of the things that we noticed, I mean, we can talk about it in India's case, but that... Um, within the caste system, the more, the poorer and the more disenfranchised certain communities were, they were marketed towards um, the most with these products that, you know, this was their way to get out of their kind of like status in life, you know, to appear fairer, to find a better husband, to find a better job. And that's what we were talking about there. But what we realized is that this goes back so much further, you know, in episode three, I believe we talked a lot about, you know, historically people who worked outside were darker, you know, and that's across the world, you know, in the Philippines and in India and Africa. And so they would have darker skin tones. And so everybody was using skin lightening creams that they had access to appear, you know, you know, wealthier, more established, um, have a better status in life. But this really flipped in the U S and across the world when the tanning industry came about once jobs moved inside in the U S it was a, signal of leisure that you were able to spend time outside and on the beach. So people were tanning themselves to look more luxurious, wealthy, etc. And then these products were exclusively marketed to darker women. So that's kind of like the long story in a very short amount of time. But I think that goes back to kind of the systemic oppression. If, it de- if it's not just about your class in life and it's not just about where you were born, it was like it's specifically targeting darker skinned people, much like, you know, textured hair products, which I think could be problematic, vaginal products, which, you know, have, you know, toxic ingredients in them too. It's that these communities are even more disenfranchised today. Nina, Pierre, do you have thoughts? Yeah, you covered, I mean, you covered that so eloquently and (laughs) just all the research that you guys put into in the episodes two and three and how it's interwoven, highly, highly recommend listening. Um, you know, I think the other thing that I found interesting when 
when we were filming, to, I guess to give you an example of, of how I saw this play out was that these, these companies are also recognizing that they make it very accessible when you are of lower socioeconomic status, lower caste, and unfortunately in rural areas in South Asia or in South India and India, um, that still exists. Um, and that's the reality of the situation, but they make it so accessible that it's five rupees, you know, which is still attainable for people who are working in the fields and who are still, you know, trying to just feed their families five rupees. And I saw a mother who bought the five rupee packet for her daughter, thinking that it is a golden ticket to a better life, thinking that it does get her out of this oppression that she won't have to work in the fields or she won't, she'll just have a better life. And, and that's the problem within our community. When we talk about race, there's also this hierarchy that continues to exist uh, of colorism. Yeah. Um, Pierre, do you have anything else to add before we wrap? Um, sure. I mean, you know, uh, it's it's a fascinating and, and a big topic. Um, and it might sound like a really broad stroke to talk about history this way, being like, oh, people everywhere, they used to work outside. And so the sun was beating down. You know, it's kind of like saying like, oh, people in the medieval ages, like, you know, used to like die younger or something. It's like, mm, are we sure? Like, why are you saying that? But, um, you know, but we talked to a lot of historians and and they laid out a lot of examples, like in many, many different societies where where this dynamic did kind of happen. Um but in any event, you know, this problem is, is, is super fused. I mean, with everything that, that exists in society, there's no, there's no really addressing this problem without addressing so many other things. You know, that's why we talk about colorism in the first place, as opposed to just talking about the skin lightening industry. Um, you know, I think uh, we didn't look, we didn't look at specific, you know, psychological studies, but, but I, I, you know, children as young as like two, you know, can tell differences between, um, between how people are, are treated, basically, and and what status what status is, um, and obviously this has you know some some role into that. Um, so yeah, the, you know the last thing that we leave on in our last episode is really about this um, this inextricableness. We didn't use that word; it was a little too SAT. We figured, but um, <laughs> it's I mean it's this appeal of this problem is like so intertwined with like everything that you know it's 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 kind of the water that we that we swim in. We're obviously going to be revisiting this topic on Glossy and hopefully in other episodes of the Glossy Beauty Podcast. But this series, this is the, the wrap of this series. Um, thank you so much, Nina, for being here. And obviously, thank you for all of you for listening. Um, Pierre and I loved working on this. I mean, it's been a labor of love and terror and fear all rolled up into one. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And, and thank you, Nita, for joining us. Thank you so very much for joining us for the first episode, of course, an interview and, and also here live uh, for this, uh, this last interview, the bookends of our, of our podcast series. Thank you. I love what you guys are doing. So this is uh, just really meaningful to me. And thank you all for joining. See you guys later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning into our bonus episode of Unfair. And stay tuned to the Glossy Beauty Podcast, since we will be back with more starting next week. Mm-hmm.